Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Rogopoulos. And this is Oeuvre Busters. Busters. Maybe? Is it? Is How does it? one, you know, one... Um, I miss those cabinets. I used to have cabinets like that. You don't miss these shit. Uh, no, you, you miss those cabinets. You're, you're, you're a fool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, miss, <laughs> you miss what they Look, represent. You, I'm sure your cabinets in Burbank are much better than ours here in Brooklyn until, you know, the fire comes for them. Well, the <laughs> thing about mine, mine is they have a two-picture deal at, at, at Warner uh, for yeah. HBO Max. They're doing really well for, them, for themselves. The, at, my least not, at least they're not working for Quibi. <laughs> um, well, all right. Here we are. This was our uh, – so just, just to provide some context for everybody listening – when this comes out this is our third attempt for recording it's it's going well so far um i really wish we had we should make a short audio documentary about the last 45 minutes of our lives trying to figure this out i wonder if i have the material um we're <laughs> we're here with as hamra how are you sir i'm good thank you thank you for having me on to talk about a kurosawa film absolutely and thanks for your patience well well the infrastructure american infrastructure has been collapsing it well i guess, it's, crumble, I guess yeah. it's been going on for more than 45 minutes i feel like it's it sort of yeah. predates um that and we're here to talk about the film the idiot from 1951 um before we do let's um scott let's well let's let's introduce as hamra so as hamra was n plus one's film critic from 20 from 2008 to 2019 and was the editor of the magazine's film review supplement. He has worked as a movie theater projectionist, a semiotic brand analyst, a political pollster, a football cinematographer, a zine writer, and for the film director, Raul Ruiz. He lives in New York. Um, Before we jump in, where did you work as a football cinematographer? I worked as a football cinematographer in Boston, Massachusetts for a place called Sports Film Lab. What did you do? I went to high school and college football games with a 16 millimeter camera and shot them on black and white film for training uh, purposes. Whoa. Yeah. I did that for two seasons. Was it, was it enjoyable? Well, it was nice to get out in the fall, you know, and be outside with a movie camera. Yeah. I I can't imagine. It sounds so like interesting. I mean, I drove, I drove all around New England, you know, not, well, not all, I didn't go to Maine, 
but Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Did you- um, shooting these football games. And, um, you know, I used a 16 millimeter Bolex for this. That was Ooh, the, I shot the, one of those. Those are great. The larger model. And I had, I had a wooden tripod and <laughs> you know, this, this, this was like at the very, this was right before video got good enough that you could read the numbers on all the backs of the uniforms in a wide shot. You know, uh, uh, you know, I don't mean television video. I mean something that would be be available to you know college or a, or a high school. So I I basically did this in the last two years it was ever even done, and this was you know the late this was the late eighties. Did you ever make it down to the South Shore of Massachusetts? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Why do you ask? Um, that's where I'm from. Oh, really? What town are you from? Duxbury. Are you from Duxbury? Yeah. Well, I have friends. I have friends in Hall and in Situate now. Even. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's I mean it was a big football town. I didn't play football. Um I was not allowed to, which thank you to my parents for that. Um, Liam, I could hear the nostalgia in your voice. From yes. my from my home from my hometown. Your hometown. hometown. <laughs> it's a and nice it's fall. beach town. Yeah, it's fall now. So it's fall in New England and fall, football season should be starting, but it's it probably really isn't starting because of COVID. I don't think you know. so. I feel like in Massachusetts, it seems like Massachusetts has, well, COVID, but it seems like they've really flattened the curve in the short term, yeah. but it seems like they're being, well, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But yeah, um, Duxbury, Massachusetts. I haven't been there in a while, but that's where I'm from. Wow. Um, that's all there is to say about Duxbury, <laughs> Massachusetts. Uh, it's we're beautiful talk- in the fall. Check it out, people. We are as, it as- is beautiful. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's really, really nice. As Scott pointed out, we are talking about a Kurosawa film, The Idiot, released in 1951. Uh, George, do you want to give us a quick plot summary of The Idiot? Liam, as usual, I would love to give you a quick you, plot George. summary of The Idiot. Even though in a film like this, a plot summary doesn't really kind of make any much sense. But anyway, here it goes. So The Idiot, an adaptation of Dostoevsky's 1869 novel of the same name, tells the story of Kamida, a traumatized and spiritually pure World War II veteran, who meets Akama, a man who is in love with Teiko, um, and um, Akama is returning home to reclaim an inheritance. Teiko is the mistress of a man named Tohada, but Tohada is also attempting to marry off Teiko to a man by the name of Kayama in order to avo- avoid the social disgrace of his treatment of the young woman. Um, Teiko rejects marriage and eventually comes to a kind of realization that it is only Kamada, the idiot, who kind of sees her as she truly is in a sort of kind of pure and innocent sort of way. Um, eventually, Kamada becomes romantically involved with a woman by the name of Ayoko, and Teiko goes to live with Akama, who mistreats her like most of the men in her life do. Uh, eventually, Teiko forces Kamada to choose either her or Ayoko, and he has to admit that he loves her or at the very least that he can't marry Ayoko or be in love with her. Uh, and then finally, in a fit of rage, Akama kills Teiko, and the film ends with the two men kind of losing their minds because of their grief. Um, the end. Although, of course, again, the plot summary doesn't really say much about the kind of, uh, yeah, like the majesty of this excellent film. Uh, yeah, it's there's a it's it, it's one of those movies that is weirdly simple in terms of story, but um, in some ways, um, but goes far beyond oh. that. Well, the story, the story is very, it's a, it's a very melodramatic story. Mm-hmm. And, and Kurosawa's film, you know, emphasizes that more than the novel does. So, so the story, you know, the story is very interesting in the film in that, that it downplays the role of the character who's known as the idiot in favor For of, sure. in favor of Teiko Nasu, the Setsuko Hara part. Yeah. 
which is uh, who's called Nastasia Filipovna in the novel. Right. So if you know it, 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 the the film as as you, as you know you guys know is originally supposed to be a hundred minutes longer than it is. It's already a long film. It's two hours and forty five minutes long, and it, you know it followed the novel more closely and it was supposed to be shown in two parts when it came out. But uh, the studio, which is Shoshiko, the studio of Ozu, um, famously, was not happy with Kurosawa's work and cut 100 minutes out of the film and made it into the film we see today. And they did not preserve the material that they excised. So it's one of those stories like the Magnificent Ambersons or Greed, uh, von Stroheim's Greed, in which the film was supposed to be longer and different, but the studio interfered and cut out a lot of the material and destroyed it. Uh, and so the, 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 the elimination of the subplots from Dostoevsky's novel uh, make the film, you know, more fast paced and therefore mel more melodramatic and in, in, in perhaps more cinematic, although, of course, we'll never know. Um, and the plot seems convoluted and hard to follow mm -hmm. when one just describes it. But it's actually not that hard. It's about a woman who's a who's a fallen woman which kind of made, made maybe made a little bit more sense in, in the Russia of the 1860s than it does in early 1950s Japan. Um, so she's a fallen woman and she's forced to choose between a number of different men, none of whom have their best in, none of whom have her best interests at heart until right. she meets this guy who's, you know, who's uh, returning from a hospital in Okinawa where he was confined because of post-traumatic stress syndrome that from fighting in World War II. So, so in the novel, the character is returning from an asylum in Switzerland where he's been confined because of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Herself, yeah, that's right. It's yeah. different, of course. Which yeah. Dostoevsky also suffered from at some point that's in his right. life. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, the entire nation of Japan was suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome probably in 1951 still. Uh, oh, yeah, so, of course. So Kurosawa, you know, is relating the story to a contemporary setting, you know, in, in the best way that he can. And I think it's very successful. Uh, so you like the film, the film, film yeah. I think, it, I think it's a great film. I think it's Kurosawa's most underrated film. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all the criticism it received when it came out is, has hurt the film's reputation over the years, especially Donald Ritchie's criticism of it. You know, Donald Ritchie was a great, uh, explainer of Japanese cinema to the West. He was a writer and, and filmmaker who lived in Japan, who was from, who was an American. And he wrote, he wrote extensively about Japanese cinema, including a book. Uh, uh, well, he wrote several books about Kurosawa, but one in particular that has a, a chapter on each of Kurosawa's films. And it really reviles the idiot. You know, mm -hmm. it, it completely, dis it completely dismisses the idiot as a failed film that Kurosawa should not have made. And I, I think this is really unfair to the film. I think it's, I think it's a great film. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. I th think it's a very harsh film about human relationships. I think it's a film about, uh, you know, the position of women in, in, mm -hmm. you know, contemporary society that is still pertinent. And I think the performances in it are great. And I think it's beautifully shot. It has a very morbid, crazy feel. It's very Gothic. Mm. And, um, you know, it's really a cinema of looks and intense emotions, I mean, a film of, of looks, intense emotions. And 
you know, it's a unique film and also in that it's snowing in every scene of this film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a film that's two hours and 45 minutes long and a lot of it takes place in interiors. Uh, it's set in Hokkaido in Northern Japan. Uh, and it takes place in the winter and it's, it, you know, there's, there's snow falling in almost every scene. There's huge, huge piles of snow on the ground. There are blizzards in the film and there's an ice carnival in the film too. So it's, it's re it's really a film of winter time. It's very wintry and about, uh, it, it's a, it's emotions are of the winter. Yeah. And, and that's not really part of the novel. You know, that's something that Kurosawa added to it. And because he decided to set it in a Hokkaido, I guess because Hokkaido is closer to Russia than, uh, you know, Tokyo or, and, um, you know, according to Donald Ritchie in Hokkaido, people sit at tables and chairs, Western style. And it's more Westernized because of its proximity to Russia. This is what Ritchie claims. I don't know anything about this personally. And in fact, in the film, we see them, you know, their, their, their interiors of their homes and other places they go are very Westernized. And Kurosawa makes them kind of look like, uh, you know, like everything has a kind of Dracula setting in this film. (laughs) Yeah. And Setsuko Hara has a very, she is very vampish, you know, in, in like a Weimar sense or a silent movie sense, Mm. or, or she's like, she, her character seems to be somewhat based on Maria Cazarez's performances in Cocteau and Brisson films. So she's kind of like, um, you know, the woman in Orpheus or in Les, mm. De, Les Dames uh. de Bois de Boulogne. You know, she's dressed in black all the time. She wears black fur. Yes, she, yeah. She has black beret. She wears a black cape. You know, she's she's a kind of mourning character and very gothic character that's kind of like an apparition in a way. Like she doesn't really exist. She's just this nexus of all the desires of all these men who are constantly telling her what to do that she's rebelling against well it's funny too because i feel like the titular idiot also plays that kind of same role in the sense that he's like this negative he's he's like a presence but he's also so much of an absence in the film like he's so in so many ways like amazingly passive yes well that's true it just becomes he becomes this like really interesting kind of nexus through which so many of the other characters desires and motivations are kind of channeled in and through and i just found it really fascinating the kind of again the negative but like the negative presence that he has in the film he he is kind of the character through whose eyes we see everything yes i think mishkin i mean i i I haven't read the novel i've only read like the first like 30 or 40 50 pages and scott sounds like you have the read the novel but i remember reading an introduction where i think somebody makes that same kind of claim about prince mishkin and the original where he's like a very passive character that obviously he's central to the story and everything that unfolds but he's so much more of an observer um than so many of other dostoevsky's protagonists he exists where the characters all tell him their feelings all the time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in the heart. It's kind of like in the heart is a lonely hunter, the Carson McCullers novel. And you know he he's Dostoevsky presents him as a saintly figure whose whose understanding sure. of human soul is beyond that of the other characters and represents a kind of Christian idea of love. And in uh, the Idiot, the Kurosawa film Hakuchi, pardon my Japanese pronunciation. Um, he is not that as much, you know, he's someone who's kind of set apart from everyone because of his illness. 
which isn't really quite fully explained in the film. And he's seen as a holy fool and someone beneath all the other characters. Mm-hmm. But his Kurosawa positions him a little bit differently than Dostoevsky does. It's, it's, you know, it's not clear why he, I mean, we, there's so much of the film we'll never see because. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it doesn't really mar. I mean, I want to emphasize to anyone listening that it doesn't mar the experience of watching the film as it stands now uh, at all. But th- there is something mysterious about this character and he's, he's portrayed as this kind of innocent person and Mifune as, as um, his rival is almost like a gangster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's, he's a very extreme, disreputable person. And when he's put together with Setsuko Hara in this very uncharacteristic role that she's playing, they're, they're a very badass couple. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, there's, something, there's something ominous and threatening about the two of them together that sets them apart from everyone else in the world of the film. And this, this is something that the idiot character is observing with a certain amount of confusion and jealousy. Mm-hmm. And there's that one scene in the film where Setsuko Hara's character has that long monologue and, and Mifune is just, this is late in the film, and Mifune is just observing as she talks and the idiot character is listening too. And the wind is howling outside and the stove is flaming in the place where Mifune lives. And it's very intense and gothic. But Mifune is kind of dressed like Elvis in this scene. <laughs> He's wearing a very ornate robe, like a dressing gown style robe yeah. that's brocaded and has a lot of detail. And, you know, you can't really tell what all the detail is, but it's very kind of a flamboyant look. And, and all of a sudden he's standing there. He looks like Elvis, who's somehow all of a sudden been recast in an Ibsen play. <laughs> and, and it's a very discordant thing that's very that's really excellent in the movie, but you can kind of see how this might've been confusing to people in 1951. Well, I was just going to say, I also feel like I was really blown away by this movie. And I I think it, there's a lot, there's almost as to me, there's as much to talk about around the, the watching of the movie as there is to talk about the movie itself. But one of the things that I, I feel is really interesting to highlight the fact that a hundred minutes were cut from this movie is, I don't know if you guys felt this way watching it, but particularly for the first time, you spend the first 20 to 30 minutes in my mind being very disjointed in terms of how you understand the movie. Like I really don't, I feel as though I didn't, I had to, I didn't rewatch things, but I definitely spent a lot of time being like, wait, who is that character and what's their relationship to X, Y, Z? And it it felt like to me, the film didn't really get going until Satsuka Hara's first appearance at Kayama's house. And at that moment, the entire movie just locked in. Her presence in this movie alleviates a lot of the confusion because she's so in command of the screen the whole time. And it does feel like a very atypical performance. The The beginning of the film involves some narration and some some texts that are put up on the screen. Right. It, it's kind of like the beginning of In the Mood for Love. mm when there are texts and some narration on the screen and it's, and it is very disjointed and, and cut kind of quickly. And there's a documentary aspect to it as well, because we see the streets of Sapporo in the snow and it's, it's, it's on location footage. It's like neorealist style footage of Sapporo. Mm. And that whole section of the film is kind of like a silent movie to me. 
or, or it's like a version of a silent movie that you would see today, like a Guy Madden movie. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens in that part of the film, this is like the first half hour of the film. Everyone talks about Setsuko Hara's character and what a bad fallen woman she is and how she has to be married off and she has all these problems. So when she appears, it's like when Orson Welles first appears in The Third Man. It's something you've been hearing about. Yes. You know, we've been hearing about her for this length of time, which is, you know, significant amount of time in a film, not as much as in The Third Man. But all of a sudden she shows up at the door in this very dramatic shot, and it's Setsuko Hara, who many people will recognize from Ozu films. And she looks completely different yeah. than she looks usually. So, you know, we, we've been conditioned to expect her to be a certain way. And she shows up and she fulfills those expectations more than you would assume that she would even do. And it's very dramatic when that happens. And it also is in the book too when that, that happens in the book. Because the idiot character knows who she is, but she doesn't know right. that he has ever seen he's seen a portrait of her in the mm. in the in, in both the novel and the and the movie. So he knows what she looks like. So when he answers the door, he knows who she is. But she doesn't know that he knows who she is. So it's it's very dramatic when this happens in the film, and it's done with a it's done it's done with a certain amount of subtlety, w- without losing the force that it has. You know. Yeah, it's just it's it's because the last film that I I mean I watched with her and it was No Regrets for Our Youth, which is obviously a very very different and maybe more in line with the way we've seen her in in Ozu films as well. And it's just a completely. It's a very, very different kind of more like you said. There's there's sort of a, a mean spirited quality to her at times in this film, and she's especially with Mifune, she's a little bit of a bully, um, but she's so alluring. She's a very cynical character, and she positions herself outside of society, you know, because you know, in in, the, in her backstory, she was she was the daughter of a noble family that somehow lost all their money. And she was essentially sold to a rich man when she was 14 years old and became his mistress. And now he is trying to sell her off to someone else because right. it's bad for his reputation to have this woman trailing him around who is his underage mistress, but who also now hates him. So, you know, he, he's bribing people to take her off his hands in the film. So she's she's already someone who does not have a positive attitude towards society in this movie. Whereas in No Regrets for Our Youth, she's she's having an affair with someone. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've seen her as a as a student in that movie that, that takes place over several years. Um and you know, we know that she's a good person, just like she is in an Ozu film, even though she's doing something wrong. But in this film it's it's very different. She you know, represents she, a kind of goodness, I feel like, in a lot of films that she does. Yes. Well, she was called the Eternal Virgin or the, right. the woman woman of Japanese cinema. And and this character and this part is the opposite of that. And, you know, one in reading about Setsuko Hara, you know, one reads that she was unhappy, um, always playing the same kind of person that she played in Ozu films. And, uh, you know, if you look at her career, she started acting very young at the beginning of the sound era. You know, she was a more, you know, she was playing more different types of parts before she kind of got typecast by Ozu. And this part in uh, The Idiot is a real 
it's almost like a rebellion against the other characters that she plays. And, you know, Donald Ritchie in his book says that she's just miscast in this and it was a mistake to put her in this film. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's like seeing her in this film is like when Dorothy Malone takes off her glasses in The Big Sleep mm-hmm. in the bookstore. You know, it's like, a, like through, through, through so little uh, effort, she becomes like another person. Yeah, that's a really distinct moment. I mean, I, the, it's funny you mentioned The Big Sleep because I haven't thought about that film in a while, but that moment is so crystal clear. I, I, haven't, even, I haven't seen that film probably in a decade, and that moment is like so clearly lives on in my brain. It has that kind of power to it where you go, oh, that's a completely different person. Yes. So, you know, her, she really carries this film, even though she's not in a large part of it, you know. The end of the film, you know, the last... She's not in the, this, I mean, I don't know how much you guys spoil the plots of the films when you do these. Oh, yeah. Feel free to talk about it. Yeah. She, in the, in the last 15 minutes or so of the film, she, she is dead. But the characters are still talking about her. And there's some very strange dialogue, you know, of course, in translation in the subtitles about her after she has been murdered by the, mm-hmm. the Mufune character. She, um, you know, they talk about her. Mufune is saying, yes, she has a beautiful body. Take a look in the morning. You know, he's, he's encouraging oh, right. the idiot, idiot character to go look at her corpse, but not right now, later. They're, they're, in, Mufune's, uh, they're in Mufune's house, and it's snowing outside, and it's dark. And they only have candlelight. And the candles are all in glasses that are upside down. And, um, you know, the, the idiot character answers that he wants to look at her, but he's worried that she may start to smell, mm-hmm. you know, this is very strange, you know, um, it's, really strange. You know, it's like a Poe, you know, but, but more extreme than that, you know? And, um, you know, she's not in the film anymore at this, at this point, she's only in like, she's in the largest section of the film, but she's, she's absent at the beginning and the end, even though she's talked about, you know, she's the thing that is most discussed you know, in, in the first half hour in the last 15 minutes of the film. It's about her, you know, and it's about, I mean, essentially these men have killed her. I mean, he, she's been literally murdered by someone who's kind of her husband, which is Mifune, and this other person who's in love with her. They just sit around talking to her. No one, no one, no one actually ever helped her in this movie. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that, there was a lot that, that sort of was a revelation to me watching this for the first time. Um, I think... I'm so curious what the other 100 minutes that are have been excised are because one of the things that I love about the film in addition to having it you know having the reading of the film being like about men destroying this woman that they quote unquote love or think is special I think is really really interesting but also just the fact that I don't know what your guys well depending the past you know having been in quarantine for half a year now I feel like I've been watching a lot of whatever in you know you talk about this scott a little bit in some of your pieces like whatever the new thing is whatever the new kind of you know palm springs as an example as an extreme example and what this movie felt like to me going back and watching was like a throwback to a real movie and i know that that's you know kind of ridiculous to say in a way Mm -hmm. but the fact that there are long dense almost theatrically long scenes in this film and that as you said there's this is a film of like images and close-ups mostly 
and spending your time watching people think and feel things. It's just such a like kind of, it feels different to me than any other Kurosawa movie. And I wonder if it's because of his, his um, reverence for the text. Uh, but it feels like a very interior, maybe closer to like Scandal or some of the earlier films or Quiet Duel comes to mind. But I was sort of blown away by the, the, the portrayal of a woman in her situation mixed with the fact that it felt like uh, to be very sort of bland about it. It felt a little bit like a slow cinema kind of film watching it at home and, and watching these things evolve over time. And I, I, I don't love that term, but I felt a little bit like, oh, I can see some of like contemporary filmmakers that make these longer, more uh, shot interiority, watching people think and make decision films, like Nuri Bilcic-Ceylon or something like that. I saw some of that and some interiority in this film that I don't think I've seen as much in Kurosawa, especially the films that come after this. Well, the, the, it, the, the film is unique in Kurosawa's filmography in addition to being probably his least seen film and his most reviled film or his only reviled film in a way. Mm. Uh, it's neither a crime film nor a samurai film. So although he did make films that are not those things, like The Lower Depths and, you know, that's also a Russian an adaptation from Russian literature, um, he is not known for this kind of film. Right. I, I, I didn't find it... The film is very intense, you know, so it's not... It doesn't have the... It doesn't have the, um, to me, it didn't have the slowness of, uh, you know, slow cinema film, as you mentioned, because the emotions, because the emotions are so heightened. It's more melodramatic. Mm. It's, it's more melodramatic than that, I think. Um, and it's more, uh, it has a real drive, you know, it's more, re it's more relentless, you know, and the, the, with the winter setting and the snow really emphasize that. And, you know, there's a lot of walking and talking in the film, um, that's very intense too because the 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 emotions of the characters are so heightened and they're always walking through these huge snow drifts in the snow um so it's it is it is a unique it's a, it's it is a unique film in his filmography and if 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 someone if you didn't tell someone it was a kurosawa film before they watched it they they might not know that it was mm -hmm. you know yeah i t i definitely agree i feel like it, it doesn't feel in line with what our preconceptions about his movies are. Um, and we, we're watching something different. And yeah, I do think it has a, definitely has an intensity that isn't present in those other films. But I feel like the way it dwells on faces and the time it takes, to he really lets the way that people feel and think play out. And I, I think that that obviously adds a great deal of intensity and tension to the movie. Cause you're, wa you're waiting for people to do things and to behave and to react. And it, 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 I wonder what you guys think of it as an adaptation of a novel that obviously has a great deal of, you know, Dostoevsky being someone that really chronicled the way people think and, and ideas in their heads and stuff. I'm wondering what you guys, do you guys feel that that plays well cinematically? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 I've read the novel and, you know, I, I've, I've been rereading the novel to talk about the film. And um, what's interesting to me is how it's not like the novel. Mm. Like, like, so I mentioned it's like a silent film. It's like a Fritz Lang silent film in a way. Or it's like um, Cocteau or Brisson I mentioned. Yes. But it, it's, it's also like, it's very, it's, it, it really feels like a film of its time because it also has things in common with Ingmar Bergman and Elia Kazan. 
you know, it's very, uh, it's very dramatic. It's about the people in a way that, you know, action films uh, are not. And, you know, it, it does kind of participate in that 50s cinema that was emerging around that time that was more dramatic and more theatricalized uh, mm. that's represented by Bergman and Kazan and, you know, Fellini, um, you know, and Kurosawa, I think in people's minds represents that too, but they, they normally apply that to a more epic kind of scale, like a movie like Throne of Blood. Um, uh, and this film, this film is like Throne of Blood and that it has this kind of Gothic quality and it's based on, you know, great literature too. But when, when, if you talk about Throne of Blood, I don't really think about Shakespeare when I'm thinking about Throne of Blood, you know, even though it's based on Shakespeare. Yeah. It's it's interesting just to, to, to get to that. And then, George, I'd like to hear your thoughts. But I feel like Kurosawa is jumping a little bit ahead. Kurosawa's adaptations feel like way more depressing and dark than his sort of original films. Like, you know, we, 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 did, we jumped ahead and did an episode on Ron recently uh. and how... I mean, that movie is one of the bleakest it's films ever made. Bleak, Obviously, yeah. the it's based on bleak source material, but, you know, this movie's pretty bleak, too. And I don't feel <laughs> that, that same heaviness in some of his original works that I feel in some of his adaptations. I mean, in many respects, yes, this film does seem to be a little bit atypical as far as Kurosawa's work goes. But I was, so I can't really speak again to how faithful it is in relation to the novel. And again, I guess it's sort of kind of unfair to think about that question also because there's so much of the original cut that's missing. But I was just interested in the general question of like what it is that attracted Kurosawa to the source material. So in many respects, yeah, it is a very different film because like Scott mentioned, it's not a samurai film. It's not a gangster film. it, It doesn't have a lot of those kind of genre elements that a lot of Kurosawa films that we've seen so far and will see have but a lot of the questions especially like these much larger broader existential questions regarding loneliness regarding innocence regarding what it is that we owe one another as human beings I feel like those questions um, exist obviously exist in the source material but I think those are the questions also that drew him to it as well Mm. Um, and they become so like watching this film like there's so many echoes for example of uh, Drunken Angel, there were so many echoes, thematically, of course, more so than um, in terms of actual plot. But yeah, Drunken Angel, Rashomon, these questions of like, again, what does it mean to like exist in relationship with one another? What do we make of the the limits of um, human behavior when it comes to like murder or rape, whatever horrible crime it is that we commit uh, against other people? So I think like those kind of general thematic questions to me are what made me think like, oh, this is very much like a Kurosawa film. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it definitely deals in those questions that many of his films do. But I think that I don't really know this production history that well of this film, but this film and his filmography comes right after Rashomon. Right. So I believe that after Rashomon, he probably could have done whatever he wanted, you know, because of the great international success of that film. So he chose to do kind of a dream project, which then the studio interfered with. And, you know, it's to his credit that he didn't follow the failure of the idiot with something commercial, but instead made Ikaru. Mm. And, um, you know, that that's really commendable on his part, I think. That wouldn't really happen that way today, I don't think. No. And, um, 
you know, there's things in Ikaru that kind of echo um, things in the idiot, specifically the ice carnival scene is similar mm. to the night, the night town scene in Ikaru. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a lot different. One's in an urban setting and in Tokyo and the others in the, you know, small, smallish town, I guess, or smaller town in, in the winter. But they both have this kind of sense of, you know, the world attacking you, you know, coming in on you um, in, in being out of control. Uh, and, you know, so. I can't remember what the question was now, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I think it's a really interesting period in Kurosawa's, you know, filmmaking career where he wasn't really, he had kind of emerged from making the earlier films and now could do whatever he wanted mm-hmm. and uh, persisted in doing that despite the failure of this film. Not Which must only... have been a terrible thing to happen. You know, you make a film that's, supposed to be shown a certain way and then the studio just cuts cuts 100 minutes out of it and doesn't ask for your input or anything you know the way it's detailed in the in the emperor and the wolf the Stuart galbraith book is that he agreed to cut it down to three hours so essentially yeah he removed 100 minutes and then the studio removed an additional 14 or 15 minutes and Uh there's a great story how he said you know if you're gonna do it this way why don't we just cut the movie vertically yeah like why don't we just make like he just didn't he was furious because he planned this film out and you know it's it clearly was the most important project. You know, there's a bunch of great quotes from him about how important Dostoevsky is, about how, you know, he portrayed like an honesty that was hard to look away from. Um, and to see it dashed off like this is really, yeah, it's it must have been absolutely devastating. Well, he is a very Dostoevsky and filmmaker in, in the ways that George was discussing. And there is something dark and 19th century about a lot of his films that aren't samurai films, but even some of those, I think. Um, and this film is really the thing that's interesting about the idiot is that this film is the most extreme version of that in a way. Um, mm-hmm. be- before Ron, I guess maybe, although Ron is a fully realized film that no one messed with. What part of what makes this interesting is that it's a, you know, it's what they call a film modit, right? It's a mm-hmm. cur- film. And, uh, you know, its status as a cursed film is part of what makes it so interesting now. Mm-hmm. But it's also what makes a lot of people not want to watch it because it's not a samurai film. It's not a crime film. Yeah, it's sort of like deep, deep Kurosawa. You know, it's not like where you'd <laughs> it's start. It's level a, Kurosawa. Yeah, it kind of is like, like I, I don't know what the class, well, you're the professor. I don't know what the class designation would be, but it's definitely in the in the higher numbers in terms of one's experience of it. Um I, I wanted to discuss uh, Mifune, obviously, um, my because um, his role in this is, I find, very, very interesting. It was one of the first times watching it where I saw, I don't know if, I, if, if this is the right way to put it, but in the early scene on the train, it was one of the first times where I think a lot of Mifune's rawness as an actor has kind of disappeared. He's a lot, like, you can see, like, oh, not that he wasn't an actor before, but that he he's 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 showing technique that he hasn't we haven't necessarily seen before and he has a lot of subtlety and 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 heart in those early moments and then he kind of later in the film does a little bit of 
for lack of a better word, he hams it up. He's a little bit over the top and angry. And it's it's a really interesting movie that I feel like portrays like the Mifune that you see in Seven Samurai, a little bit in Rashomon, and then some of the in some of the earlier films, like Quiet Duel comes to mind. It's very, very subtle. Would would you uh Scott, would you think of Mifune in this film? Well, I felt that he was a lot less hammy than in Seven Samurai. I mean, yeah. he's just completely out of control in Seven Samurai. Uh in this, well, when we meet him on the train, when he first meets the idiot character, he's smoking a half cigar, as you may recall, that he's saved. He's got right. like a half stogie in his mouth that he's trying to light. Mm-hmm. And he's very brusque, and he forces someone to give up his seat so the idiot can sit there. And, uh, you know, we learn, I, I feel like we learn who he is better than we learn who the character in the Dostoevsky novel is in the book. Um and basically what Mufuni has to be in the idiot is a badass. He, you know, he's in love with, uh, he's in love with Taiko. She's not in love with him, but she's willing to settle for him because she wants right. to repudiate the other men that are interested in her. One of whom is like a kind of a hapless bureaucrat who works for, um, Takashi Shimura's character. Who's a wealthy, uh, businessman. And, um, you know, she she's willing to go kind of onto the side of a of a of a criminal life that that Mifune represents in this. Although he's not quite a criminal, it's unclear who he is. He's come into a lot of money and he's able to borrow a lot of money too, because you know, at, at the big party scene, he shows up with a package with a million yen in it to right. buy her off, which um, you may recall he throws into a fire. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the, when, when money is burned or destroyed in movies, those are special movies. I think, you know, right. not yeah, a lot of, of movies. There's not a lot of movies where things like that happen to money. The only one, other one I can think of right off the top of my head is the dark Knight. That's the first thing that pops into my head is when they burn all that money in the dark Knight. That's the first thing I thought of. Uh, well, I, there's a Michael, there's a Michael Haneke film in which a family that's, it's kind of losing their minds flushes a huge amount of money down the toilet is that benny's video or the seventh continent it's one of those two i'm yeah. sorry to say i can't remember which. i think it's seventh continent well, it also, yeah i recall yeah. that it also happens at the end of sam raimi's a simple plan when he realizes yeah. the money that he's stolen is kind of useless i haven't seen that oh it's a great great little film oh it's yeah it's very good it's funny you should point to that scene too because that's a scene as a pseudo-marxist thinker that's the scene also that really drew my attention because right before that also is the scene where the idiot walks into the the house and he accidentally knocks over that vase and i forgot which character it is but somebody freaks out and is like oh my god those like vases are super expensive Shimura yeah does, and then does, um... and then Taiko, interestingly enough is like fuck it who cares and she knocks over one as well well, you know, that's a very interesting scene because that is very much like the scene from King Vidor's from King Vidor's movie the, of the Fountainhead with Patricia mm-hmm. Neal, where Patricia Neal takes a statue and throws it out the window of a Manhattan high rise to prove that she's not married to these objects, no matter how beautiful they are or but how is, expensive they but are. Is there okay? So yeah, in in that film also, there's like a certain kind of a there's a value to the object too beyond it's like it, it being beautiful. It's it's something that's you know, like on the, on the marketplace. It, it, uh... Uh, yeah. 
I don't I don't remember that aspect of that scene clearly mm-hmm. now, except that she she takes this beautiful thing and destroys it by throwing it out a window on purpose. And that film came out in 1949. And I wonder, you know, I can't remember now if she destroys the vase in the novel or not. Mm-hmm. But but it's similar to that. She purposely breaks and ruins this very beautiful, um, valuable thing to prove that those things are important to her. Uh, and that that's a great scene in the film. That's one of the first things that happens in the party scene. Yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, and you know, party party scenes are great in movies too. <laughs> Love them. Yeah, yeah. If a film has a good party scene, then that's what kind of makes the film. Godfather. You know? Godfather's a great <laughs> yeah. example. Godfather right. one and two have this great. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, of movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's is another movie like that. Yeah. But this is a much more serious film than that. But it's still, you know, you know, everything that happens at that party is so fraught. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of starts with her breaking that vase on purpose and ends with Mifune throwing the money into the fire. And it's a large bundle of money. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know. A million, how, yeah, it's a million it's yen. A million yen. So those are probably large banknotes, you know. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain contempt for everything in this scene that is uh, really, really enjoyable. You know, pleasurable. You know, it's interesting uh, that scene, and in, in, in particularly the vase that you guys mentioned. Like, for, for one thing to just note really quickly is that this movie has like an insane cast of Kurosawa regulars and and, um, Oz- and Ozu regulars. And, yeah. The yeah. mother, the mother from Tokyo Story, is one of the yes. main yes, characters that's in right. this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Minoru Chiaki, who plays Kayama, the kind of um, the sort of subservient guy who uh, who can't get the money out of the get out of, the, out of the, this, this burning and he kind of disappears and he comes back. He's in Stray Dog for a minute. I believe he has a pretty, pretty I believe he's in Seven Samurai, but he's like pretty wonderful in this movie. Well, he's, um, he has the most thankless role in the movie because he plays yeah. he plays a wimpy, worthless guy who's just trying to marry up, who's trying to pay his way into a better world. Well, that's one of the things that's interesting is that I was thinking a little bit about you know, one of the things that when we've, as we've been going through these films is there's always, there's a constant kind of refrain in the way that Kurosawa has talked about critically, especially uh, from a Japanese cinema perspective is that he's the most Western kind of director. Mm -hmm. He makes the most Western films. Galbraith talks about that a little bit in the book when you, you mentioned sort of the fact that they're sitting in chairs and it takes place in Hokkaido and it's, there's something strange about the environment. But I wonder a little bit about the political the political reading of this movie because there does seem to be a little bit of contempt for this moneyed class of people who only care about vases and the idiot is kind of there in some way to shed them of their sort of aspirational desire to move up in terms of their class like it it feels there's a lot of readings as to who the idiot is one being that like you know he's there to absorb their pain and their truth but also i think he makes them realize that like the things they value don't really have any value mm-hmm. is one way i've read it i don't know how you guys read it no but I totally feel like there, yeah but there's an inherent political statement about class in this movie he's constantly upsetting traditional value systems or at the very least like his presence is a threat to those value systems and also again he is he's been traumatized by the war, which again, it, like you find out very, right. very early on and it's kind of quickly forgotten. But I mean, there's obviously a very, very um, obvious like political rating of the film that you can make about th- that fact as well. Well, he does have a seizure later in the film in the yep. snow. Uh, mm-hmm. He has a fit that's, it's unclear. 
you know, it's an emotional reaction to the situation with uh, the Setsuko Hara character, Teiko, and Mifune. Um, you know, but he, in the novel, he's kind of more Christ-like than he is in this movie. In order to get him in front of these wealthy people, Dostoevsky kind of has to invent his, his background. You know, he's related to someone. There's, mm-hmm. there's a potential inheritance he might be getting. In, in this film, they, Kurosawa kind of dispenses with that. He is related to the wealthy family, but it's unclear how. And there is kind of an inheritance that he does get, which is in the form of a farm. Right. You know, and, you know, all, all that's a little murky in this version. So, so the fact that that is, you know, downplayed in the film is, makes him less, less of a holy figure that is showing up their materialism in the movie than it does in the book, I think. Although, in, Although all, in all honesty, when I saw that scene, and maybe, again, this is because I was thinking a lot about the Dostoevsky novel, but when I saw the scene with the money in the vase and in the house, and again, maybe this is like way too much of a projection, but I was like, oh, this is a kind of um, transfiguration of like Christ's cleansing of the temple. Like he, uh, walks, he walks into this you know, the space. And again, like all of these like moments, all of these symbols of value are quickly overturned and that's also why i was like god damn like i wonder what's in that hundred minutes because there are so many instances of these echoes of certain kind of questions of like spirituality like we didn't discuss for example the fact of like like mifuni has that thing where he talks about like his mom being very religious and being like praying to the boot every day and then they, yes. then they uh-huh. exchange those talismans or those um tokens those charms the that they charms, wear. Charms, yeah. And there's like uh, there's like a really interesting kind of totemic, obviously, power in the exchange of the charms too, which, again, to me, felt like really, um, kind of uh, not obviously not Christian, but like saturated with all this kind of like spirituality and these questions of, um, yeah, I guess just spirituality. Well, as I recall, Christianity is discussed in the film briefly. Not not in the scene with the mother who who's who's very poor and has to give them food from the altar that she's laid out. Um, there's there's a pagan to me at least. I'm not an expert on Japanese uh, spirituality or religion or anything at all. But uh, the the ice carnival and then the exchange of these charms is very. It's kind of pre-Christian somehow to me. But again, I shouldn't wade into that. But, um, you know, it's like that scene in the Hidden Fortress where they come upon the the native people doing that dance. Is that the Hidden Fortress? Yeah, I think it is the Hidden Fortress. Yeah. That's it's been a while, but I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that there was an aspect of that in this film, too. This, this kind of primitive re- religion, you know. But, you know, I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it the charms seem to protect the idiot from harm you know right um when he exchanges that with mifune's character there's an there's another interesting thing about the the exchanging of the charm and that relationship and that it seems like all of the men in this movie are driven crazy by the um setsuko hara's character like she's Mm -hmm. you know like they're they're in love they're so in love with her that it hurts them and mifune is never happy and um unless he can possess her and kiyama's only marrying her for you know these reasons related to class whereas 
when Mifune is with the idiot, with um, Kamida, he's he seems actually kind of happy. The like there there's something interesting about the the, the relationship between the two men, where they seem to be happier with one another than 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 Mifune is, for example, when he's with Hara. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if you guys had any thought in it. I feel like the contemporary way to think about it is that there's like a bromance going on, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. kind of it's. It's a really interesting reading of the movie, especially when you present the idea that like she's being tortured by these men on all sides and these men seem to just be happy when they're with one another, whether it's the patriarchal men sitting around and drinking or if it's the younger men trading charms and sort of well, enjoying you know, each other's company. Mifune does take, her, does take uh, the idiot to meet his mother. Mm-hmm. Right. Not something he does with Setsuko Hara's character, but who presumably has met his mother. But that's you know that doesn't that's neither here nor there. Uh, there is the reason Mifune is comfortable with him because he can talk to him. You know, he mm-hmm. can let down his guard. He doesn't have to be tough all the time anymore. And so yeah. again, this is like this is like you know in the in the novel the characters can talk to the idiot in ways they can't speak to other people. Mm-hmm. They can. They can say who they really are to him. And in the movie version, the only characters left doing that are the Mifune character and the Setsuko Hara character. And also a, the character that's based on Aglaya, Aglaya in the novel, who is um, also really great in the film. Is that Ayako? Um, that's Ayako, yeah. And the, the, the actress that plays Ayako is great. Yoshiko Kuga. She's phenomenal. She's so good in this movie. Yeah. And so the, the, the performances of both the women in this film are great, you know? And, um, when, uh, Yoshiko Kuga, she's, she's really the only character that kind of develops across the film, you know, right. she's very suspicious at the beginning, but by the end, she's been totally convinced by the idiot character that he's, you know, he's kind of the best person. She's you know? also so interestingly conflicted. There's like a great, if you were to take the, the, the sort of the shots from each one, there's a sequence where she's, she criticizes him for this, she criticizes him for that. And then in the final, this final exchange between the two of them, she's like, am I too hard on you? And it's like one of the legitimately <laughs> funny moments in the film. Well, you know, the, I don't. That's a montage scene of their Right, it's a life. montage, exactly. Yeah, it is. Yes, that's their courtship. Their entire courtship is her criticizing him. Right. And him, it's, just, it's very... him just not saying anything. He just sits there and lets her yell at him. And, right. And, and by the end of that, they're in love. And then she says, well, have I been too hard on you? It's so funny. It's yeah. just, it plays like, you know, I don't know if this is a funny movie in, in most cases, but that's a very, very funny moment. And um, yeah, the conceit of that scene is, is, is kind of humorous. Yeah. You know, because she yeah. is, she's just unrelentingly critical of him through that. Yeah. Sec- yeah. <laughs> But you know yeah. the way that the way that Yoshi, Yoshiko Kuga plays that, she doesn't seem, you know, she doesn't seem like a bad person. Mm-hmm. She she's not annoying. No, or absolutely not. Real, you know. She she we you know we 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 you know she's right essentially uh, about all right. the stuff that she's saying. Yeah, yeah. That's she's a great, also, that's a great section of the film, really. Yeah, it's she's also. Um, it's it, it the the sort of behavior one of the things that's great about this movie is that the characters are who are cruel are often so self they're they're so full of self-doubt and and they're deceiving themselves and she does a really good job of making that self-deception feel humanized well, you, the the scenes with her at the piano are are mm-hmm. the kind of heart of the film 
Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's three scenes where she has conversations with the idiot character at the at the piano in her mm-hmm. house where she lives with her parents. And there's a big window um, perpendicular to the piano and that they sit in front of and the, the snowstorms are raging outside. And, and those mm-hmm. scenes are really great. You know, those those scenes indicate a certain amount of hope in the film that perhaps really isn't there by the end. There's um there's a lot to unpack with I mean this movie feels massive to me in terms of length and also the fact that there's a hundred minutes missing and you know there's a in some alternate history there's a four hour two part version of this movie which I'd love to see I was curious did you guys how did you guys watch this film I had to I was actually happy that it was sort of divided into parts because I had to I had to watch it in two shifts which I didn't want to do but it was just how life ended up do you did you were you guys able to sit and commit to this this thing in one go i'm curious how you how you watched it especially with the way the world is now and the constant distractions that we have to deal with well i've seen the film a couple of times before Mm -hmm. uh and the i saw it in a movie theater once and i saw it on uh dvd once so so for this viewing i watched it on criterion channel using roku and as you mentioned the film is divided into two parts and one is called part one is called um Love and love and agony. love and love and agony. Yeah, right. Right. And, and part two is called um, part two is called something like that. Love and loathing. Yeah, I have it and, here somewhere. Yeah, and part one is ninety three minutes long, and part two is seventy three minutes long, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, so the way I watched it was I watched part one one night and part two the next night. Yeah, that's essentially what I did. Yeah. It's uh, it it's kind of nice. I don't know. It felt it felt good that it was slotted that way for me personally. I was like, oh, this is great. George, how did you watch it? Uh, I actually watched it this morning, and I kind of, in a in a sense, like planned it that way because I knew I would have to watch it in pretty much one sitting to make it in time to record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I like yeah I started it like right after breakfast, like around eight o'clock or eight thirty, um, and then Oof. by like eleven o'clock I was done. Um, and I don't think, I, I, th- I think maybe I paused it once or twice for like a bathroom break, but other than that, it was pretty much one shot. I, Scott, I, where did you, oh, go I ahead. Think I think it's better to watch it straight through. Oh, you of know? course. I, yeah. yeah I, w- I wish I had watched it straight through, but you know, the first night I started, it got late and I decided to watch it the next night. Normally I would watch it straight through. It's, 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 it, it has the kind of intensity that, um, you know, it's, it's good to watch it straight through because of that. It, remind, you... it reminded me of my experience of watching A Hidden Life with Liam, and maybe I've said this already on the podcast before, but at some point, about like 45 minutes or an hour into that film, which I absolutely loved. Yeah, I think it's an amazing movie. But I, I found myself drifting away <laughs> in so many ways. And then I remember I just had this moment where I was like, no, you have to consciously sit here. You know, this film is three hours long. You have to kind of ratchet up your level of attention in a way that you normally would not. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, so about like an hour or so into the film, I just found myself riveted or um, like my attention was just turned to it in a way that it wasn't before. And I was like in a completely different zone and was like, okay, I'm totally with this film. I'm totally with its running length. And it just made the the viewing um, experience so much more pleasurable to kind of like battle with your own kind of sense of distraction or your own sense of kind of like boredom it really made the experience of watching that film unique well that's a film that really demands a movie theater i think this film also demands for a movie sure theater, yeah to me well, at least. i mean every movie demands a movie theater right. to me <laughs> True. a hidden life we're talking about the terrence malick film from 2019 yes. 
people don't i don't know if you have mentioned it before in the show so everyone just knows what it is but it's a very it's also a very intense film and um you know it does it's better i watched that film straight through uh you know in, in the movie theater when it came out but uh you know this this i mean all the so you know drifting away from a movie is part of seeing a movie mm-hmm. you know that's that's you know that's fine to do that there's some scenes in the idiot where you know it is you know you know you just you just go away from it you know that to me that's just part of things and especially in a film that has so many snow drifts in it you know th- mm-hmm. things are things are they're disappearing in the snow you know and there's there's that scene where there's kind of like a little mini avalanche on the top of the house Oh, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they're, like the snow buries them, you know, I mean, that's what's happening in their lives in the movie, you know. So, you know, it's drifting as part of it, I think. It's it's just so interesting because a film like this to me, like, I mean, as you said, every film demands a movie theater. But there's something about the runtime of something like this and the experience of it that that just is harder to do in the in the afternoon, which is when I watched the first part of this it was like yeah. three o'clock in the afternoon. Um but one thing that I've like with with a hidden life is it's now available on on HBO Max or HBO in general, and people I've been saying like oh you've got to watch this film, but you also need to like put your phone in a drawer and like mm-hmm. you know just be really committed to it and turn off all the lights because it's it's just such a it's not a movie that you can really you can't half watch I mean you can't half watch any film but that film in particular I mean there's is well there's, only... there's there's I mean television is made for you not to pay attention to it episodic right. television is made for you to not pay attention to it even if you even if some show that you love you know that's just what for you know everything that happens on tv is too slow to me i watched part of a plot the plot against america you know Mm -hmm. i couldn't believe how dull it was (laughs) you know things that in a movie would take you know 15 seconds take four minutes in these in these quality dramas you know, it just goes on and on, and they say the same things over and over again. It's not cinema. There's no movement. There's no concision. You know, it's mm-hmm. not concise. And you know, movies. You know, good movies are not operating like that at all. They're much more. They're much more thought through. And you know, the filmmakers know they're dealing with a limited amount of time in a different way than people that make episodic television do. Uh, I mean, the, you know, not being able to go to movie theaters really is a, is an exercise. It's an exercise in frustration in some ways, mm-hmm. but it also really shows you the difference between television and the movies. So I tried to watch. Um, I, I mean, I did watch it all in one sitting. The Siming Lang film, Stray Dog. Mm. Uh, but you know, watching that movie at home by yourself is like. It's like uh, it's it's just such an ex- exercise in existential despair, because not, nothing happens in this movie, and some of the shots are you know ten minutes long. I don't know how long they are, and uh, someone is just standing there looking off. Uh, you know, it's it's also a very intense movie, but mm-hmm. watching it by yourself at home, you really start to ask yourself, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing? Exactly. What, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing on? this? Right, right, yeah. right. 100%. What is going on? What Let's... what has brought me to this moment where I'm sitting on my couch by myself watching Stray Dog? You, you it, know. Well, it's it's interesting because I watched like I was saying before on a recording attempt number two. I watched The Devil all the time last night, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, beautiful movie, uh, well well filmed. But the best thing about it is that 
Antonio Campos, I don't know if he made this decision, but he made a movie instead of, it could be a 10 episode Netflix show. And the fact that it's a two hour, 15 minute movie makes it so much more. I, I just think it's a better, better experience because they, there could be a TV show where every character gets an episode. Cause there's a lot of characters in the film. And I, I just was sort of relieved that I had an experience that only took one night. That was like new viewing as opposed to like, Oh, 10 episodes of whatever the plot against America. I don't know if I need 10 episodes of this. It was just, it was kind of a, a breath of fresh air to watch a, a new movie that felt like a movie as well. You know, I, I I also saw that movie and to me it was like an acting exercise. That movie was like an acting exercise and how British actors can try to (laughs) subtly portray Americans. They think are trashy. Yeah. And I'm also glad that it wasn't any longer than it was. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, can you, can you quickly say also, because I think it was in, in attempt number two or 25 or 30, I forget which one it was now that you had this really interesting rating of the accents or about like how English actors are used in American films and how this might be a kind of form of, uh, cultural imperialism. Well, I, I've written about this a few times, and you know, it's it's starting to be something that I harp on too much. So I'll try to be <laughs> in 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 the UK and in Australia and Canada, in New Zealand. People do not have to kill themselves and go into debt for the rest of their lives to learn their professions. So people that study acting in those countries have an advantage over Americans. They don't have to try to be stars right away. And, you know, to me, this is a form of uh, imperialism that is now invading the Hollywood cinema. Uh, you know, British actors have always been the best actors in the world, but traditionally they have played, you know, villains in American films or Nazis or, um, you know, the, you know, the e- evil emperor in Star Wars or something. Or, and, and now they seem to specialize in racist Southerners. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the classic Hollywood cinema, actors played their own voice. Even if they were playing foreign uh, characters or they were playing Americans, but they weren't Americans. You know, Cary Grant and Errol Flynn play Americans, but they don't try to sound American. I mean, there's probably been two actors that I could not tell were, were not Americans playing Americans in the last 10 years. Right. You know, so well, this, it becomes a frustrating aspect of the cinema. Right. I do want to say, though, that I, I love British actors. You know, I don't have anything <laughs> against them as you know, human beings. And they're, they're, they're great at what they do. Well, I think we all recommend The Idiot. I think we're all fans of the movie and we recommend you should see it. So wrap, before we wrap up, Scott, we'd love to chat a little bit about your book and maybe your latest piece for The Baffler. My book is called The Earth Dies Streaming. Yes, which is appropriate these days. As uh, a lot of people have mentioned to me. And, um, of course, we all streamed The Idiot, probably, to see it. <laughs> we did. Uh, and it collects my writing from 2002 to 2018 when it came out. It came out at the end of 2018. You can buy it directly from uh, N plus one online or on Amazon or in a bookstore. Maybe on, mm-hmm. maybe you can get it in a bookstore online, too. And now I'm the film critic for The Baffler magazine. And, uh, you know, normally I review just all new movies in my column every comes out six times a year, the baffler, but for the, I got tired of trying to see new movies at home this summer. Mm. So for my new column, which I wrote, uh, this summer in July and August, I wrote a column about the 20, no, excuse me. I wrote a column about the 35 best films of the year 2000. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, 
yeah, I was asked by another magazine to write an anniversary piece about two films from 2000, which that's coming out in October. I won't say what those those are, okay. uh, but that will be an Essence magazine, S S E N S E, the Canadian uh, publication. Uh, but so for the Baffler piece, I wrote about the 35 best films of the year 2000. So you can read that online or buy the magazine and subscribe we'll in, to it. We'll include links to that. Yeah. Um, we'll include links to all of this in the notes. I just wanted to say that your book was given to me actually by a, by a guest on the show about a year or two ago. And it's just, it's really great. I highly recommend. Who uh, gave it to you? Who, who, Sorry? Gave it to you? who gave it to you, may I Oh, ask? I have a friend named Michael Carroll who, um, who he was on our show last year talking. He's a big... Uh, He's a big film guy, and he he came into my office. We worked together, and he was like, "Hey, I, I had a I had a gift certificate to I think it was Unnameable Books," and he was like, "And I bought you this book because I've been reading it for a year, and I love it." Oh wow, it. that's and, great! Uh, yeah, and he he gave it to me, and I I sat in a a bar on Fifth Avenue and Ninth Street in Park Slope before I left. And I drank a beer and read it, and I was a huge fan of it. And I think George is reading it now. I am. Yeah, oh, I great. Re- I love the um, the chapter about where you discuss uh kubrick's 2001 and it ends with like a discussion of spielberg at kubrick's wedding uh wedding oh, his right. funeral yes. yeah <laughs> his funeral yeah yeah and how like he expected some sort of kind of hollywood spectacle yeah that's a <laughs> that was a real low point for steve you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never it never never went that bad again and the piece on the baffler I just want to say really great is I've, some of these films I've seen and some of these films I, 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 I've still not seen. But what's great about it is that it brought me back to 2000 and the movies. I remember renting Hamlet from Blockbuster, the Michael L. Marietta's film, and just being like, whoa, this is I've never seen anything like that. And how, how much I loved Unbreakable. And just it's, it's one of the things I love about this piece is how it feels very rooted in a very specific moment mm-hmm. when movies felt like a very different kind of experience and also made me go like wow la commune, la commune is, is 20 years old i didn't I've, i still haven't seen I that film, but there are it, things yeah. on here that are still like ambition and then some that i have fond memories for like virgin suicides unbreakable gleamers well, and i which yeah. yeah well there's a lot of great films uh from that list you know mm-hmm. i interviewed michael almereda recently about his new film tesla for mm-hmm. the Baffler. And it's funny you mentioned Hamlet, which is a you know, film that looks kind of looks better every year, his version of Hamlet, which is set in the present of 2000, year, year 2000, New York City, and stars Ethan Hawke and uh, Julia Stiles and uh, Bill, Bill Murray, Murray. and yeah. Lev, Schre- Lev Schreiber. Um, but you, you rent it in a blockbuster, and there are several scenes in that movie that take place in a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Including the story. to be or not to be, as I recall. Uh, I think so. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty great. It's, it's a really good film. Yes, it is. Uh, it really is good and it's not that long either. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's under, I think it's under two hours. He really, he really cut down the screenplay from the play to make that film in a way that's very effective. Yeah, for sure. And then of course, Dancer in the Dark, which is, you know, one of the, is a, is a great film, but I, I love this piece as a time as, and, and as a, as a time capsule and a remembrance of like, man, especially now that we can't go to the movies, but you know, it felt like going to the movies in 2000 was a bigger deal than it is in 2019, 2020 people take it, took it. I feel like I took it more seriously then, which is kind oh. of a sad thing to reflect on, to go like, Oh, this used to be like a real event. And now it's just, now you can almost, you can't do it right now. 
Well, we definitely can't do it right now. That is true. We we will um we we love your writing and we were really we're really yeah. happy to have had you on the show and we we uh we will make sure that we we get all that stuff out to people in the notes for the show and they can please read the book. It's it's, it's a great, great book. Yeah. Thanks again, Scott. Oh, thank you both so much. It's great to meet you uh this way. Yeah, right, fantastic. Uh, okay. All right. Um well and we the will idiot. go see you know see the idiot. Yeah, please see the idiot. It's on the Criterion channel. I don't know if it's available other places, but uh, see it in the movie theater if you can. (laughs) Yeah. All All right. right. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Bye, Scott. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you to Scott for for joining us. Yeah, his book, The Earth Dies Streaming, uh, is available from N Plus One site. Don't buy it from Amazon. Don't buy from Amazon. I actually bought it from from N Plus One. It came in like in a week's time. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. In the, in the in the United States Postal Service, which um, currently still exists, but who knows whether it will I think exist. It's, I think it's going to be weeks. okay. Everything is going to be fine. Every, I have every, to think that way. <laughs> I have to. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Next up on the show, uh, bringing back our old pal Blake Howard to talk about who's going to who's going to take who's going to talk about all the presidents' men and <laughs> Michael Mann. No, uh, he's going to talk about the Seven Samurai, um, and uh, it's going to be great. I'm 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 sure he will bring his usual charm and sophistication can't wait it's gonna be awesome um please rate review subscribe to the show if you love us so much that you want to part with your well-earned dollars in which in 2020 is a real challenge uh patreon.com slash uberbusters we just did an episode by the time this comes out well definitely our 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 dirty dozen episode is already available and and we've got a we've george we have to figure out what our what our october yeah patreon's gonna be well, I guess we knew. We but knew, yeah. But there will also be, by the time this comes out, of course, another essay, another wonderful, brilliant essay by me with so many wonderful Yeah, what's it going to be about? So you know what? I was in, I was going to write about... So we were going to do an episode on Ben Affleck. And I saw the sum of all, all fears and I, I started writing a piece on the sum of all fears. And I might save that actually for later. Save it. Yeah. But I, I'm like then after seeing The Idiot, I was like, oh no, I really want to write about this. So I, will, I think I'm going to be writing about The Idiot. Fantastic. And that's for, that's okay. Fantastic. That Patreon. sounds good. Yeah. Um, please rate, review and subscribe. I, I was Liam Billingham. I was George Fragopoulos. And this was Uvra Busters. Peace y'all. Bye.